Parshas Vayikra introduces the Karbanos, our first parsha, which is fully and totally dedicated to Karbanos in general. First part of the parsha deals with Karban Ola, Karban Shlamim, other types of Karbanos. The last big chunk of the parsha deals with Karban Chatas, the sin offering, the guilt offering. The Torah brings a variety of different types of Chatos. We have Chatos Yachid, the type of Chatos that an ordinary individual Private, private citizen brings for doing an Avera. We have the carbon that the Nasi brings. Nasi is understood to be the Melech in, uh, in, in by Chazal. We have the, 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 the Kohen, the Kohen Gadol brings a particular kind of Chatas. We have the Parhelam Davar, the carbon brought by Bastin, the Sanhedrin. If they make a mistake and issue an erroneous ruling, we have other types of Chatos, Chatas of Shua Sa'edus, and so on. And the we have, so, so, so the Torah is, so this parasha is all about is all about the all about the karbanos. It's, act, it's act, actually some of those are ashams. All the way at the end, we have the we have the we, we have carbon ashram for some of the last few for for gzela for we, for for gzela for different different types of things. The parhalam davar the the chatas that's brought by the Sanhedrin. So there's an entire masechta about this maseches harayos harayos as we say in yeshiva. The Maseches Harayos is all about the, the detailed conditions that have to apply for the Parhalam Dover to be brought. There are certain conditions in terms of you need a ruling by a Sanhedrin, you need the, the populace has to act based on the ruling, the, the ruling has to meet certain very particular criteria. But if the, you can, we have a whole Masechta about it, a short Masechta, but a whole Masechta about it, if all those conditions are met, then the Basin brings the community, the Tzibur, Parhalam Davashal Tzibur, the Tzibur brings a, a carbon. This is considered a, a communal fault, and Hedron issued a wrong ruling. It was followed by the people, and there is a Parhalam Davashal Tzibur. So, as we've pointed out in the past, as everyone points out, this is a classic indication of how the Torah does not believe that our leaders are infallible. Sanhedrin, despite the fact that it says, that lo sasur yaminu small, you follow them, whatever they say, we recognize that they are not infallible, we recognize that it can happen, there's an entire carbon, an entire masechta that deals with what happens if the Sanhedrin makes a mistake. And in general, we understand, certainly, we call this accountability, the idea that even, uh, even leaders, even great men, they can err, and when they do, it has to be acknowledged, and it has to be publicly acknowledged with the carbon and so on. Rashi makes a similar point in our parsha regarding one of the other karbanos, not the other chatos, not the parallel davar Sibur. Rashi says regarding Rashi brings a midrash regarding the the carbon of the nasi, the way the Torah describes the carbon of the nasi, it introduces his carbon by saying that it introduces his carbon by saying it talks about the kohen, it talks about different people who can uh, different people who might who might do the chet, the kohen mashiach. And after the Karn Mashiach, we get to the we get to the Parham Davashal Tibur, and then we get Asher Nasi Yachta. When the Nasi sins, the language introducing the Nasi is Asher. Asher means when or that, or when it happens, this is what you do. But the Midrash has a drasha, play on words. It says that Asher is from the word, is like the word Ashray, happy, uh, felicitous, felicitous. Felicitous is the generation, Shanasi Shalom, Nosin Lev, Lahavi Kapara, where even the leaders are accountable. They, they, they acknowledge they have to bring a Kapara for their for their chataim, even for a shogig, certainly for certainly for Zidanosov. So it's good. It's important to be accountable, religiously accountable 
for one's transgressions, for one's errors. There is, however, a contrary strain of thought that it, 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 it's somewhat obscure. It, it comes up in a lot of obscure corners, but there is a, a contrary notion, which is uh, somewhat alien to our notions of accountability. And that is the idea that it's important to preserve the dignity and honor of leadership, of Bastin, of kings, and so on. And therefore, sometimes the Torah actually approves, to a certain extent, of covering up error, of simply not being accountable, of simply avoiding admitting. Don't admit, just uh, brazen through it. Obviously not, uh, not generally, that's not generally the rule, but there is actually a principle called, a principle that we are concerned about, Zilusa de Beidina, we're concerned about the disgrace of the court and of leadership in general. And tonight, what I want to do is I want to go through a number of different uh, instances where we find in the Talmud, we find in other, other, uh, other sources in rabbinic literature, Poskim, Mepharshim. We find this notion that sometimes the, the Torah or certain, uh, certain interpreters of the Torah endorse the idea that sometimes it's legitimate to cover up misdeed because the, the price, the cost of admitting it, of admitting, of admitting human frailty, of admitting error, of admitting that we're not infallible, sometimes that's a price that is too high to pay. And again, some of these examples are pretty, uh, are pretty obscure. Some of them, though, as we'll see, are more practical, and some of them are actually uh, astounding, are actually, uh, are actually disturbing even in, their, in the bluntness of the, of the positions that they take. The primary surgery in the Talmud is a long discussion in Baba Basra. The Gemara relates a civil dispute involving property, involving real estate, where both sides brought different, different, uh, different types of testimony that, uh, that, that, that indicated the property was theirs. So based on the initial round of testimony, the Basin awarded the property to one of the two parties. Subsequently, the person who lost brought further testimony in his favor, and had we looked at the whole case at this point, with all the testimony that we currently had, we would have awarded him the property. The exact details are not, uh, are, are not critical, but the point is, initially we ruled correctly based on the testimony before us. We gave the property to Ruvain, let's say. Now we have more testimony has come in, and now we would really give the property to Shimon. So what do you do now? We already, we already based on already issued an earlier ruling where they gave the property to Ruvain. So the Gemara Baba Basra brings Machlokes, Rav Nachman, and Rava. So the, 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 the Gemara has a detailed discussion about it. So Rav Nachman says, what's the problem? We gave it to Ruvain, we can go take it away and give it back to, uh, and give it back to Shimon. That is elusive to Beidina, you worried that the court will look silly, that the court, people will uh, snigger at the court. Lo we have to do what we have to do, we have to do what's right. And we rule as, uh, as the halacha would be, and, and we don't pay any attention to the reputation of the court. We have to do the right thing. That would seem to be uh, the obvious position. Rava disagrees. Rava argues that we do have to be concerned with Silusa de Beidina. And Rava brings an interesting brisa, interesting halacha in support of this. Rava says, there's a case, a woman, a woman is trying to remarry, she thinks her husband is dead, there are, there's a possibility her husband is dead. Two witnesses say he's dead. Two witnesses say he's not dead. So what do we do? What do we do if we have conflicting witnesses? So the halacha here is she shouldn't get married. But if she really did get married, then she has to be teitze. She has to, she has to leave the husband. 
So the Gemara says it's Machlokas, the Tanakama says Lo Tete, Rabbi Nachman Bariosi says Tete, she has to get divorced, she has no business marrying as long as the testimony is contradictory, she can't marry, and she even has to get divorced if she did. But then Rabbi Menachem, Rabbi Yossi says, it depends. That's only if the conflicting testimony was already present when she got married. But if not, if the testimony in her favor was there and Baston accordingly issued a ruling in her favor and she got married with the imprimatur of Baston and then other witnesses came in, then we say, she doesn't have to get divorced. Why not? Says Rava, Zilusa de Beidina. If Baston has to say, whoops, we, 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 we messed this up, but we allowed a married woman to remarry, that would look really bad for the Baston. So even though initially, had both pairs of witnesses come together, we would tell her, don't get married, but once we allowed her to get married, and now the court's reputation is on the line, we say, let her stay married, because we are concerned with Zelusa de Beidina. The Gemara goes back and forth, the Gemara continues for quite a while, the Gemara brings in a third case, where Zelusa de Beidina might be an issue, and the Gemara goes back and forth, back and forth. At the end of the sugya, at the end of this sugya in Baba Basra, Ravashi, so far, Ravashi, at the end of the Talmudic period, he concludes, This is not a concern. The court has to rule correctly. The court cannot be concerned with its reputation. And therefore, at the end of the day, the, the Gemara here seems to end up at a point that we would uh, be comfortable with, that the court has to do the right thing, and it, its reputation is simply not important. I mean, it's important, but it's not as important as the truth, and as, as following halacha, and therefore, the conclusion of the Gemara indeed is, Zelusa de Beidina lo chayshina. However, the matter does not end there. There are a number of other poskim who, there are a number of poskim, in the Achronim, and even Rishonim, who say that it's not so simple, that there are certain times where we are concerned with Zelusa de Beidina. There are certain times where we will allow a halacha that is suspect, that's dubious, that we have reason to believe might be wrong, at least might be wrong. There are certain cases where we will allow such a halacha to stand in order to avoid zilusa de Medina, in order to avoid injuring the reputation of the Basin. The Bach, the Bach in his commentary to the Tur, the Bach says, even though the Gemara and Bavastra concludes that Lekuli Al-Maravashi said, according to all opinions, we're not concerned with Zelusa de Beidina, that's not a price, that, that's, not a, that's not a reason to uphold a problematic ruling, says the Bach, that is only when an individual Basin is, is able to retract. So we say, fine, the Basin realized they were wrong, the Basin found new evidence, so that, 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 that doesn't generate such a, that does not engender such a severe Zelusa de Beidina. But in a case where another Basin would come along and said, you made a mistake, we're smarter, you missed something, we, we, we're going to overturn what you said, that would be Zelusa de Beidina, and you cannot do that. If a basin makes a mistake, and, you, and another basin disagrees, the second basin has no right to overturn the first basin, because that would engender Zelusa de Beidina. And this, of course, is, the, is at the root of a major body of literature, we've discussed this in the past, years ago, a major body of literature in halacha, does halacha recognize the, the need for the legitimacy of an appellate system, a, a, a hierarchical system of Bate Din, where you have some courts that can review and possibly overturn the rulings of lower courts. This is a major machlokas, going back to the time of the Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Shulchan Aruch, and his contemporaries in, in Eretz Yisrael, and so on. This was a major machlokas for centuries, some poskim argued that there's a principle in the Gemara, Beidina Basar Beidina Lodaiki, one Basin does not challenge and review and second-guess the rulings of another Basin. 
Other posts can say, why not? If they're wrong, they're wrong. The, 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 the ultimate goal is to arrive at the truth. Why shouldn't they second-guess the other based in? So this was a, a major debate. We've, we're not going to get into all the details now. But one of the key issues is this, this svara pointed out by the Bach. We have a concern for Zelusa de Beidina. In other words, when the post can discuss why one Bastin can't just willy-nilly at random overturn the ruling of another Bastin, they give two fundamental reasons why you wouldn't do that. One reason is closure. A person already litigated the case once. How can you force him to repeatedly go back to court? Every time you lose, you'll just find a new Bastin to open the case again. Now, that's not fair. You, you, need a, you need some kind of finality. You, you can't just relitigate everything endlessly. So one reason why the post can say you can't just, uh, any basin can't just arbitrarily reopen a case that was decided by, a, by, a, by an original basin is because the, it's, it's the right of a losing litigant to say, I don't want to have to relitigate this. The other reason they give is the box reason. It's the box reason. They lose the Beidina. It's considered disrespectful to the first basin to challenge it, to, to overturn it. The first basin is entitled to a certain amount of deference and respect. And therefore, not just in terms of the rights of the litigants, but in terms of the honor of the Basin itself, it would, uh, it, it would unfairly, it would improperly injure the, the honor of the first Basin were another Basin to, to overturn it, to review it, to, to second-guess it. And that's the point the Bach is making, that even though the Gemara says, we're not choshish vizilusa de Beidina, the Bach says, that's true. That means if Basin itself changes its mind, it can retain its dignity. We realize we made a mistake. We, new information came in. We changed our minds. So, so that already preserves the dignity of the first basin. That's what the Gemara means when it says, It's not really so much Zelusa if the basin itself is still, in, is still in control and changes its mind. But for another basin to overturn the first basin's ruling, that is a serious issue of Zelusa de Beidina. This point is made at length in the Sefer Choshen Ephod, one of the later Achronim, he goes on arguing at great length from Rishonim and Achronim that there is such a concern against another Basin arbitrarily just opening a case decided by a first Basin. Besides the fact that the first litigant can say, the winning litigant can say, I don't have to, re- I don't have to relitigate this. But there's another reason. They lose it to Beidina. It's disrespectful to the first Basin to challenge what they did. And therefore, that, that itself is a reason not to, that, not to have, that there's no right to reopen the case. Now, this is a major machlokas, as, as we've discussed in the past. And some posts can say that in a case where the error is glaring, it's one thing to say we're not just going to initiate a review, but in a case where the error is glaring, we have to acknowledge it, we can't let a, an obvious error stand. And the contemporary system in Israel, where there is a system of Beit Din Le'irurim, where there is a Beit Din Hagadol, a Beit Din Le'irurim, they do have courts of appeal, as we've discussed in the past, many of the Gedoli Eretz Yisrael have justified it. They've said that if there's a minhag or a communal institution, they have the right to set up such a system, despite the fact that there's a concern for Zelusa de Beidina. They say if that's the minhag, then everyone buys into the system. The original judges, when they participated in such a system, they understood that they're willing to have their, their personal covered might sometimes be uh, might sometimes be injured by being overturned. So it, it's a voluntary system that they all signed up for. So the contemporary post can do, generally do say that the system is legitimate, but, it's, but it's, it's important to understand that traditionally in the Achronim, there was a major school of thought that argued that even though the Gemara goes back and forth in Baba Basra and concludes the Lucid de Beidina Lochashina and the Wenachoshesh, it's not so simple. That, that, that means that one basin that changes its mind is, is, is maybe is Lochashina, but if another basin would try to overturn the first basin, that would actually be an issue of improper Zelusa de Beidina. And, and that's something that we cannot accept. I actually recently learned 
with my Chavrus in the Kol, I actually recently learned another uh, interesting application of the Lucid de Bedina. This is not exactly a common case, but it's interesting just as uh, a, a, an interesting case in the Achronim where we, where we discussed the Lucid de Bedina. There are very, very elaborate rules of orthography of how all the words and names in Gittin are spelled, and how to spell all the names of the months is also something which is discussed in painstaking detail. How to spell, we write the, the Hebrew names or the names that we Jews borrowed from, from, the, from the Gola. We write Nisan, Iyar, Sivan, Tammuz, etc. So Nisan is spelled Nun Yud Samach Nun. Iyar was actually something of a machlokus, whether Iyar is spelled with one Yud or two Yuds. To the extent that there was actually a minhag to avoid giving gittin in er, some posts can had such a mention such a minhag. But we write er with two yuds. We write er. We write aleph yud yud resh. That's the standard. That is the that is the normative spelling of er. What happens if a sofer writes er with one yud? So posts can have all kinds of different opinions about that. Whether it's grounds for invalidating a get or not. The trumas edition. The trumas edition writes. He records a certain story where they allowed it to go with the Eved, where they said, if you already wrote it that way, we'll let it go. We're not going to make you rewrite a get for ER with one Yud. But then he says, the Trumas argues strongly the correct way is definitely two Yuds. The, the, way, the way we approach these questions, typically in Hilchas Gittin, is for any word that appears in the Bible, we check to see how it's spelled in the Bible, the most accurate spellings we have, the Mesorah, whatever it is. Words that are spelled... Uh, Differently in the Bible, in different places, we typically follow the majority. We look at how it's spelled most often. That's why there's a major debate about the, the city of Yerushalayim. city of Yerushalayim, we obviously pronounce it, and it's commonly spelled in, in, in modern times, with a yud at the end, a lamad yud mem. In Tanakh, it's virtually always spelled without the yud, according to our Masoretic spellings. So many poskim said that you have to spell it without a yud because we follow Tanakh. Other poskim said, but if it's just an odd spelling and it's so much more clear, it's so, it's so much more readable with a yud, you should write it with a yud. But in general, we follow Tanakh. Some of the months actually appear in Tanakh. Like in the Megillah, we had Nisan, we had Adar. Some of the months do not appear in Tanakh, in the, in the text of the Bible itself, but they appear in the Targum. So we had so so er, er appears in the targum. We, we 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 do have months that appear in the targum. We look at how they're spelled in the targum. So the so the Truman Sedation argues based on the targum makes various arguments for why we should why we should spell er with two yuds, and it's really important. He says, and he's not happy with the idea that we should we should spe- spelling it with one yud is okay. So he says, if there was such a ruling that earlier that earlier Chachamim said that you can let it go with one yud. He says that would probably be that he thinks that would be only if a a number of days passed since it was written, and she already was established as a grusha that she already got the reputation, the status of a divorced woman. Now, if Baston would say, you know, we made a mistake on the get, we'd like to reissue the get, that would be Zelusa of Baston. So we let it go. But if you caught the mistake right away before before people realize what happened, you should reissue the get because it's it, it's a, it's a serious enough problem that the get should be reissued. But, it's, but again, if it would be something that would be a real psul, an actual unquestionable psul, Dachronim explained, of course, we, we wouldn't allow the get to go just because of Zilusa de Beidina. And if it's something that was completely trivial, then even without Zilusa de Beidina, we, we, we wouldn't, you don't always make you rewrite a get. Some mistakes are considered too trivial. You don't have to rewrite a get for very, very minor mistakes. But this is a rare, maybe a unique case, Dachronim explained. This is kind of on the borderline between a moderately serious mistake and a trivial mistake. So the halacha is... 
if you catch it before Basin's reputation will be affected by having to issue a retraction, you correct it. If you don't catch it and you've reached the point where issuing a retraction, redoing the get, would cause uh, ignominy for the Basin, you let it go because we are concerned with the lucid Beidina. Again, not a matter of life and death. It, this is, uh, it's, not, it's, not a real, it's not a real absolute psal. Although, as we'll see, we're going to apply, we'll see soon, we're going to apply the lucid Beidina in our next example in a case that is actually literally a matter of life and death. There's a halacha, a famous halacha, a famous uh, head-scratchingly problematic halacha. There is a parish in the Torah of Edom Zoneman. The halacha is that if witnesses testify, say, in a capital case, that the defendant is guilty of a capital offense, and they based and convict the, the defendant based on their testimony, then two other Adam come along, Adam Zomimim, then Mazimim, and they say, you're lying, and we know that because you were with us somewhere else, you, you claim that you saw, the, that you saw the, the, the event in question in a certain place at a certain time, we were with you somewhere else, so you're lying, that's called Adam Zomimim, as understood in the Masoras HaAlacha, and the first Adam are executed. We do Mida we do unto him what he attempted to do unto his victim. He attempted to have the defendant killed. So we execute him as a punishment. That's called Kasher Zamam. That is the parasha of Adam Zom. Chazal have a mysterious drasha that Hargu Einarogin. You only kill Adam Zomim before they succeeded in getting their sentence carried out, in the defendant actually getting killed. If the defendant was actually killed before the Mazimim came, then we let, we let them get away with it, we let them get away with murder, literally. We say that Adam Zom only applies if they convicted, but they didn't actually succeed in getting him killed. Once the victim was killed, then they are not liable for punishment for Adam Zom. Sounds bizarre. It sounds paradoxical. You'd think that their avera is much worse if they actually succeeded in getting the person killed. Murder is always, is always more severe than attempted murder. So why, why on earth does Adam Zomim only apply, does the law of Adam Zomim only apply if the victim was not killed? So Rishonim and Achronim struggle greatly with trying to understand what the rationale for the Salacha could possibly be. There are all kinds of theories. Rav Chastai Kreskis in Or Hashem, famous as a philosopher, not as a halachist, but Rav Chastai Kreskis, in his classic Ar Hashem, he touches on this question. He says it's really, really important to preserve the, the authority, the halo that Bastin has. It's really, really important that people should always revere and respect Bastin and be prepared to do whatever they say. That's why the Torah says, Yemin is small, do what they say, right or left, because it's critical to preserve the respect and the authority of Bastin. And that's why, he says, the Torah says that that's why we will no longer punish Adam Zomim if Bastin actually carry out the sentence. Why? Because if, ba- if Bastin actually killed an innocent man and then they reverse themselves and say, you know what, Mazimim came along, they, uh, they, they led us by the nose, they pulled the wool over our eyes, now we see that the witnesses we relied on were lying, we failed in our ability to ferret, ferret out the truth, we didn't sufficiently cross-examine them, however it happened, Bastin is admitting to a great failing in their, in their judicial acumen. They would lose, they, their reputation would fall greatly in the eyes of people. In order to preserve at all costs, at almost all costs, the authority of the Bastin, we let the, we let the Mazimim go, 
because it's necessary in this case to preserve the respect of the basin. If we catch them before they carry out the sentence, great, he says. On the contrary, then people will see that as basin succeeded, they investigated, they, they found Mazimim, and they, and they saved the day. They, they, that, that they didn't wind up killing an innocent person. That, that's fine. But if, but if Basin actually killed the guy, then they, they would be so disgraced by having it come out that they were wrong that we let the Mazimim go. We let, we let, we let the, that we let the Adam Zom go. That's actually not so hard to swallow. It's relatively not so hard to swallow. We're simply letting a guilty man go. The Sefer Akedis Yitzchak, though, takes this to a far more disturbing place. The Sefer Akedis Yitzchak says that because of the Elusa de Beidina, we will actually kill an innocent man. He's going on a Gemara in Sanhedrin. The Gemara, he also brings this idea of Chastai Kreskis, but he takes it one step further. The Gemara in Sanhedrin talks about a case where witnesses testify that somebody is guilty of a capital offense, Bastin is going to execute him, and then the witnesses recant. He, the, the, the defendant keeps proclaiming his innocence, he makes a persuasive speech, and the, the, defendant, the, the witnesses are finally induced to recant and say, we lied, we had a personal vendetta against him, we were paid off. The Gemara, there's an actual story that the Talmud alludes to where this happened, where the Adem made a very credible recantation of their testimony. They said, we lied, they explained why they lied, they, they gave a persuasive and compelling story for, for, for the fact that they lied, and they explained why they lied, and we now believe, the Gemara seems to indicate, that they actually lied. So what do we do with the, with the defendant now? We, we normally, we have a rule that witnesses cannot recant. Once they testify and based on accepts their testimony, there is a standard halachic rule, Hivan shehigid shuvei nechozer magid that once a witness testifies, his testimony is set in stone. He can't withdraw it. What do you do here? They gave an amasla. They gave us a compelling, persuasive explanation for why they lied. Gemara says, doesn't matter, too bad, you kill the defendant. The Gemara does not explain why. Akedah Sitzok says, you know why? Same idea as Ravchastai Kreskis. Same idea as Zaman Velo Kasherasa. If Basin goes ahead and takes the fellow off death row and says... We haven't even killed him yet. But if Basin says, you know, we were about to kill him, turned out we were fooled and manipulated by false witnesses, we're not as good as we thought, we're not, we're not as good as you might have thought we were, we made a mistake, that would be a terrible disgrace for the authority of Basin. Therefore, he says, in order to preserve the respect in which Basin is held, we say, kill the fellow. Kill the defendant, let him go. We are not going to reverse our decision because that would lead to a, uh, that would lead to a terrible uh, weakening of the respect and reverence in which Bastin has held. I, 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 can't, I can't overstate how, uh, how incredibly provocative an idea this is. We have a man, we believe he's innocent, but to acknowledge that we made a mistake, to, uh, to acknowledge that we made a mistake would result in a, in a consequence that he says is not in the best interest of Klal Yisrael, that Klal Yisrael needs to believe that their bate din are uh, at least practically foolproof, if not theoretically foolproof. Again, parhalam davrishal tiber means that we we acknowledge, we explicitly acknowledge that the bate din can make mistakes. But in this particular case, that Kedah says it is so important to maintain the the facade of uh, of perfection of uh, of infallibility. We allow an innocent man to be sent to his death. We execute him, not to put too fine a point on it, in order to preserve. Our, uh, our aura of infallibility. Remarkable. The Malbim, 
Malbum says something which is uh, a little bit close to this. It's not maybe not quite as dramatic, but the Malbum says something which I think is similarly uh, a little disturbing by modern standards. The Malbum is going on a on a uh, on the story of David and Uriah and Bathsheba. So the story in Sefer Shmuel, the tragic story, is that David sees Bathsheba. She is married to Uriah, a loyal soldier of the king. David takes her for himself. Then, when she conceives a child, he's worried that the preg- Uriah is away. So, when, when she gets pregnant, he, worried, he worries that people will realize that he behaved improperly with her. So, David tries to cover it up. David orders Yoav, his general, to send Uriah home from the front. And he tells Uriah to go and spend time with his wife so people will... Attribute, attribute the, the child to him, and David's uh, sin will be, will be covered up. Uriah refuses. Uriah says, my men are on the battlefield. I refuse to go home and spend time with my wife. David then has him killed. David, David has him sent to the front, and where he, where, where he tells Yoav to engineer his death. This is considered a great, uh, a great sin. The, 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 a great sin. The, the, the Navi reproves David quite severely for this. Chazal said that the sin wasn't as bad as it sounded, wasn't actually adultery, it was something less than that, that she actually was not married at the time. Chazal have a famous statement, Kolomer David Chatein El Avarbanel famously, infamously disagrees with Chazal, Avarbanel argues at great length that Chazal are not reading the Psukim uh, fairly here, that the Psukim are clear that David did do exactly what he's described as doing, committed adultery, along, along with a number of other uh, heinous averis. So the Malbim, who of course is always a great defender of Chazal, the Malbim is trying to defend the, the position of Chazal that what David did was not as bad as it sounds, and he is rejecting the position of the Abarbanel. So one of the many crimes that the Abarbanel lays at, at, uh, at David's uh, feet is he says that when, when David tried to cover it up by telling Uriah to go back to his wife, so the Abarbanel says that was a terrible thing to do, he was trying to uh, hide the parentage of the child, which is something that's against halacha. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to. Uh, you're not supposed to uh, distort. Uh, we've discussed in the past. It's, uh, it's highly problematic to distort family records. The Malbim tries to justify it. Tries to justify why David was wasn't. David would have kept his own record if the kid that the child was his. He says and so on. But the Malbim is going on trying to justify at least somewhat David's conduct here. The, the Malbim says something fascinating. He says that. When David sent Uriah home to his wife, hoping he would go to his wife and cover up his Avera, the Malbim points out, by doing so, David was actually worsening his position from a halachic standpoint, because the way some of the Rishonim learn, David had issued a conditional get to, uh, Uriah had issued a conditional get to Bathsheba, that if the, if he does not return from the war, then she's divorced. If he does return, she's not divorced. That, the, that, according to some Rishonim, that's, that's how they understand the Gemara, that soldiers would issue these types of conditional divorces. If I make it back, then the get is retroactively void. If I don't make it back, then the get is valid. According to this school of thought, the Malbim points out, had David, had Uriah stayed away, from, stayed away and died on the battlefield, had he never come home, had David never gotten involved here, then Bathsheba would have been a, 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 an unmarried woman, an unattached woman. When David asked Uriah to come home, he actually was destroying the get and, there, and thereby rendering his conduct to be adultery. Why did he do that? So the Malbim says, because it was important to cover up what he had done. 
and he says, had, had, had people realized that this was David's child, there would have been a chil Hashem, a desecration of God's name, and it would have caused a merit b'malucha, it would have undermined his authority with the people, it would have caused revolt and dissension among his subjects, as the Barbanel himself notes, that these kinds of things can trigger these, uh, these political consequences for kings. Therefore, he says, because of chil Hashem, God's honor, merit b'malchus, political necessity, he was willing to accept upon himself the aver of He was willing to retroactively cause himself to have violated Eishasish rather than uh, have his sin be revealed. Again, David was not right in, in his conduct here. David was sharply criticized for the Navi. Whatever it was he did, he wasn't entirely right. But according to the Malbim, what he was guilty of essentially was a, among other things, what he was guilty of was a calculated cover-up. He was magnifying the, the heinousness of his own Avera for the purpose of covering it up, he had certainly a noble motives to avoid Chil Hashem, to avoid uh, political strife. A lot of rich and powerful people probably uh, justify what they do as it's in the best interest of the public. I'm sure there have been many political leaders and kings, Lahavdil, who have said, uh, I'm doing this for noble reasons, that my, preserving my dignity and authority is necessary for the benefit of the nation. And so on. I don't mean to compare David to the grossly self-interested uh, other people we hear about sometimes, but it's, again, what the Malbim is saying is that David, he doesn't, uh, at least not here, he doesn't uh, assess exactly how far, how, how much right and how much wrong there was in David's calculation. But what he essentially characterizes David as doing was deciding that the lucid Medina, that that in order to preserve the the honor of uh, the honor of Hashem and the honor of the the on, and, and preserve the integrity of the monarchy, it was necessary to cover up the sin, even at the price of increasing the, the severity of the sin. It was necessary to do whatever he could to cover it up, since the price of the, the cost of the scandal, the cost of the scandal in terms of Chil Hashem and of uh, disrupting the, the government, was a price that was simply too high to pay. And, uh, and that's something he just could not do, he would not do, and, and, he, was willing to, and he was willing to cover up his Avera again at all costs, uh, ju- just to avoid the possibility of, uh, to, ju- just to avoid any possibility of, of Chil Hashem and of, and of disrupting the, the Malchus. There is another case, this is, this is not about Elusive de Medina as much, but another case where you see in Chazal, how the importance of Chil Hashem is similar to what the Malbim is saying, but much further, how important the idea, the idea of Chil Hashem is, how far we're willing to go to uh, you know, trample roughshod over other halachas of the Torah in order to avoid Chil Hashem. Another story in Sefer Shmuel, again, a terrible, terrible story, the story of the, of the, the famine at the end of Sefer Shmuel, the, fa- the famine that came as a punishment for Shoal's treatment of the Givon. So that, the story of the Givonim happens way back in Shmuel Aleph, or we'll discuss exactly when it happened in a moment. The story of the famine is at the end of Shmuel Beis. There was a famine for three years. David consulted Akash Baruch Hu and said, why are we being punished? The answer was, a somewhat mysterious answer, El Shaul vel Beis Hadamim al Hemis es This is a punishment for Shaul, the crimes of Shaul, Beis Hadamim, the house of blood, because he killed the Givonim. This is a very mysterious pasuk, because as far as the Navi tells us, Shaul never killed any Givonim. So it is, there is no record anywhere of Shaul killing any Givonim. So the Mepharshim, the Rishonim, struggle to understand what is this terrible sin that's being laid at the, at, again, at the feet of Shaul and his family. 
Chazal say that it refers to when Shoal killed the city of Nov, Irakoanim, because they had been abetting, aiding and abetting David. The Givonim were dependents of the Kohanim, they were their servants, so when he killed their patrons, he inflicted harm upon them. So it doesn't literally mean he killed them, but it means that he, uh, he harmed them by killing the city of Nov, by the Kohanim of Nov. Other Rishonim learned there was a massacre by Shoal of the Givonim, even if the Torah never tells us exactly when it occurred. Why did Shoal kill the Givonim? Some say that some say that it was be, it was uh, he was still angry at their uh, bad faith dealing with Yoshua centuries earlier, even though they had promised not to kill them back then. But some say Shaul would ne- never forgave them for that. Some say that it was for other reasons. He wanted to replace them as servants. He wanted to give their jobs to uh, to uh, proper na- proper Jews. But so some say there was whatever it was. Some say there was an actual massacre of the Givonim. Some say that it was some other sin which the Navi is describing as. Asher Hamish has given him whatever it was. Shaul had done something terrible. Shaul had done something terrible to the Givonim. The problem is, however, based on the chronology, is that Shaul was Shaul was dead. Shaul was no longer alive. Whatever members of Shaul's family had been alive and participated in, certainly if it was the story of Nov, but whatever members of Shaul's family had been there and participated in the the crimes against the Givonim were Kipshuta were not still alive now. The Radak struggles with this. He proposes maybe some of them were alive, but he says, Kipshuto, whoever had actually been alive of Shoal's family at that time, whoever had participated in the crimes against the Givonim, was no longer around. What did David do? He executed seven members of Shoal's family. The, 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 Navi, the Navi explains, David attempted to negotiate with the Givonim to placate them. He said, what do you want? Gold and silver. They said, nothing, not gold, not silver. We want only blood. We want. Uh, we, we will take nothing less than a life for a life. We want. Uh, we, we want souls. We want. We, we, we want you to kill. You want. We, we want you to give us seven members of Shaul's family to be executed. And according to a number of the Mefarshim, these were not actually the ones who had been guilty of the criminal conduct against the Gibbon. David, nevertheless, gave over seven of the of the members of Shaul's family to the Gibbonim. They were executed, they were hanged publicly as, uh, as punishment for what Shoal had done to the Givonim. Now the Talmud, the Talmud is apparently of the school of thought that believes that these were not actually people who had been guilty of any crime against the, not in any way been guilty of the, of the crimes of Shoal against the Givonim. The Talmud says, V'haksiv, lo albanim. Father shall not die for, uh, for, for, their, for the sins of the children. Children shall not die for the sins of the fathers. Ishbachet yumas. So why on earth are we executing, why on earth are we executing members of Shaul's family for crimes they didn't do? Amr Avchia Baraba, Amr Rabbi Yochanan, Amr Rabbi Yochanan, Mutav Shetayakeros Achas Menatara, Val Yischal Shem Shemayim Beforhesya. Better that we should uproot a, a letter of the Torah, the Pasuk of Lagimsu Avos Albanim, Rather than to engender a public chil Hashem, Liam Just again, what we're talking about here is killing innocent men. We're talking about killing men who were not guilty. Some of the Mefarshim say other Tiruktim. They say that Liam Suavas Albanim. Chazal say that if they're Ochs and Masiv Hashem Biadeim, then we do kill them. In Aserah Dibras, we say Poked Avon Avas Albanim. We say Hashem does visit the sins of the fathers upon the children. The Gemara elsewhere asks Estira. That it says, "Banim liim sual avos, avos liim sual banim, ish becheta yumas." So, how do we understand unto the fourth generation that poked of an avos al banim, al shileshim, al ribeim, 
God does punish children and grandchildren for up to four generations for the sins of the fathers. So the Gemara says, if they're oaks and massive asam biadeim, if they're if they continue in the evil ways of the ancestors, then God punishes them additionally in some measure for the sins of the ancestors. But in a case where they don't do anything, uh, they don't do anything wrong. This Gemara doesn't say that. This Gemara doesn't say the answer to the question of liyim suavos albanim is that somehow Shoal's children continued to, to commit uh, sins that were in line with his sins. The, the answer to the question is liyim suavos albanim. The answer is. Sometimes, what the Gemara seems to be saying is, sometimes we kill an innocent man rather than trigger a Chil Hashem. Again, it's, uh, it's shocking. It's, uh, it, it, it's a somewhat difficult, uh, it's a somewhat difficult thing to understand. But that's what Akeda is saying. Akeda is saying, and in his case, if Basin has to admit that they're wrong, it would be a it would be a zilusid beidina. It would be a chil Hashem. It would it would uh, severely damage the respect in which Basin has to be held. Again, you can distinguish certainly between a chil Hashem, Hashem's own honor, and the honor of a terrestrial Basin. It's not the same thing, certainly. And again, when the Malbim says that David said that I have to cover up my wrongdoing because otherwise it would be a chil Hashem. Obviously, that's a dangerous argument for a bus or a dumb to make to say that. God's honor depends on my honor, and I have to protect my honor because that's the only way I can protect God's honor. David Melech was David Melech. We, we, we can trust him for that. But uh, obviously, if, if you give that kind of, uh, if, if we allow that kind of logic to be made by mere mortals, uh, that's perhaps more power than we, than we, we modern certainly, that's more power than we would feel comfortable in trusting into, uh, into earthly kings, into a Melech Basar Vadam. But that's what the Gemara says. The Gemara says, the Gemara says at least that for Chil Hashem, sometimes it's, it's of such paramount importance, you can kill innocent men. We have, again, in, in the more technical context of Zelusa de Beidina, the general trend is the Gemara concludes that we don't worry about Zelusa de Beidina. Nevertheless, there are a number of cases where the post can say that Zelusa de Beidina is an important value, and sometimes it's worth swallowing a halacha, which is not the ideal halacha, if we feel that doing so will help preserve Zelusa de Beidina. Again, we, we generally don't say that. Generally, the halacha is clear. If it's clear one way or another, if it's clearly wrong, we're going to have to overturn what the Basin did. But there is apparently some, uh, some earring in the middle, some gray earring in the middle, where sometimes we're going to say it's worth, uh, it's worth swallowing a less than ideal halacha, like ear with one yud, and uh, that, the way the post can explain it. It's worth suffering a, uh, a, a minor, uh, less than ideal halacha than to cause a, a zilusa Vedina. There's the element of Chil Hashem in some cases. There's, the, as Rav Chastai Kreskis puts it, the concern for, the concern for uh, people have to listen to the Basin. As Nakeda says, it's of it's paramount importance that people should uh, revere and respect the Basin, and that should, the, the respect they have should be unimpeached. At the end of the day, though, it's uh, despite the fact that we have Parhalam Davar, despite the fact that in general accountability is important and acknowledging wrongdoing is critical, nevertheless, it's, uh, it's not entirely alien to the Halacha the idea that sometimes we have to preserve the honor of Hashem and the honor of Bastin, even if that means swallowing, uh, swallowing a halacha that's less than ideal, or even, in some extreme cases, even if that means even killing an innocent man or doing, uh, doing shocking things of that nature.